This is RAF with Tony Tone and LA. Yo, this is your boy LA coming to you straight live and direct from the Jungle Studios. Uh, we're back once again with the legendary Mr. Philly. Mr. Philly, how are you, sir? Hey, buddy. I'm all right. Not too bad. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday indeed, mate. Happy Saturday indeed. Um, all right. Well, uh, we, usually, to let the listeners know, uh, you and I usually have a little, little bit of a read of the BBC News, have a bit of a chat, a bit of a chinwag, um, and uh, seemingly quite a slow news day. So we had to expand it to different fields and whatnot. So I think uh, I think I want to start with um, mummies found with gold tongues. So the background to this is basically archaeologists discovered a tomb. The ancient finals discovered uh, 160 kilometres south of Cairo. And, uh, yeah, they had gold tongues. Now, the reason why they were thinking about it was um, they believed that they wanted to speak to a deity like Osiris, the god of the underworld. And what's also interesting is in um, a lot of these ancient traditions is that you had the caretaker or person that rode you across the, the waters to get into the underworld. We used to have some sort of offering or um whatnot so my question to you uh tony is uh, mr philly are you a fan of the older archaeology do you like mummies do you think we i mean do you think we really know everything that's going on or do you think there's a whole bunch of history we just don't understand yeah i i, I agree with you with your second point i think it's a lot we don't we don't understand right they're always discovering new things and they're finding all these old civilizations and things look like they're linked to continents no, I, think, I think archaeology is really, really interesting. And I've, I've dabbled in the old Indiana Jones, so, you know, what's, uh, I have a whip. <laughs> I don't have a whip. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're keeping this PG, and I'm asking you what the whip's for. Christian Channel, Christian Channel! <laughs> uh, no, it sounds, it sounds cool. I think finding some new ancient uh, civilization, uh, El Dorado, or Atlantis, or, you know, anything like that, I think. Um, it's really, it's really cool stuff, right? Then you could, then you get into the play of treasure hunting, right? Because I think they go hand in hand. You start thinking about it in, a, in an exciting way. So it's, it's all very exciting, I think. Although I thought for Egyptians, didn't they used to harvest all their organs when they died? Yeah, there was a process of the mummification where they actually, um, I think they take a lot of the body parts out and that's how they actually preserve it. But it's it's, inter- it's interesting because the mummification wasn't just in Egypt, but in, in many different um many different sort of areas of the world. I mean, speaking of Indiana Jones, did I ever tell you, what is it, the thing is the temp- Temple of Doom? There was a one, that's the second one, yeah? So I've actually been to where they filmed it, and where they filmed it is a place called Petra, which is an ancient civilization. It was an ancient trading civilization in Jordan, of all places. Um, yeah, I think that, that that wasn't that one. That was the, um, that was either the first or the, the, the third one. Because the Nazis were in that one, right? Ah, okay. Oh, yeah, my, my knowledge of them. I think it was the third one, because it was John Connery. So, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, maybe it was that one then, yeah. But that was, that was like this most bizarre thing ever, right? So, what they did is they cut a walkway through, like, full, um, like a full mountain. So, you walk through this super tight um, alley, and it goes for, like, 
bro, it must go for at least a kilometre and a bit or whatever it was. And so it was set up with a purpose of if, like, armies try to attack, they get, like, pushed right into this small little area that they could defend from. And then it opens up into this, like, I don't know how to explain it, like, kind of like an ancient Greek slash European architecture. Uh, I mean, look, probably the Europeans stole it off them, to be honest, mate. <laughs> right? Probably vice versa. But, uh, yeah, there's, like, amazing huge columns and amazing set out, and they built all these houses and temples and restaurants carved out of the rocks. It was, yeah, I mean, once COVID's done, it's definitely worth a trip up to Petra to, to see what it's like. Um, but even building on that kind of archaeology, it's it's interesting because um, even in the UK, they discovered a rare example of Roman crucifixion at Finn Station in Kingsbridge. And it sounds um, quite brutal, actually. Crucifixion victims were bound by ropes and nails used, were usually removed when pulling the victims from the cross. The skeleton's not been precisely dated, but they reckon it's Constantine I, uh, around sort of 337. Uh, and then it's interesting now because they find all the they find all the things associated with how they died and everything like that. But also part of the article, which I found really interesting, was the next bit where they say a precious gem studded lotus flower pendant, similar to one worn by Egypt's Queen Nefertiti, has been found buried in Cyprus, the island, and the jeweler is one of hundreds of precious items from the Mediterranean unearthed of the underground chambers in the ancient city of Halat Sultan Teki. I mean, it's amazing how much um, how much trade was going on as well, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think we underestimate how how well connected things were probably back then. Right? When we think about the past, we always think that uh, everyone was must have been very simple and and all these things. But what were those cities that they, I think they even discovered in what Syria uh, or uh, I think it used to be like ancient Scythia. Right, all like the the ring cities that they had there, they were like very advanced in terms of how everything was lined up uh, astronomically, and they built uh, certain outposts in certain places to line up with the stars. Like, I, mean, I don't think we give them enough credit. Um, I I I, would, I think they were more advanced than, than we let on. You know, the, the one thing I think would be cool to see if uh, if they ever find it proof of, or maybe they have and they just haven't told us. Unless I'm just really out of. But I don't think they've ever had the, the, the remnants of Babylon, right? The hanging gardens of Babylon and stuff. I'm always uh, kind of curious about that. See if they can ever find anything left over from that to see how it really, really looked like. Because I watched a show on it before, and they just have, like, those generated uh, recreations. But, um, I don't know. I think, it's I think they have some places where they think it was, uh, and some areas kind of left over. But, um, yeah, that's actually... My father's actually really into that. What were they? The Sumerians, I think. Um, Sumerian. I think it was Sumerians. Man, my ancient history is rusting out. I don't remember if they were before or after, or they fought against the Babylonians. The Sumerians were like the first. I think that's the right word. They were the first, um, and then it eventually became kind of Babylon uh, and the Babylonians. But I read this book. Um, it's like 1196 BCE or something like that. Oh, I mean, look, I can, if people are that interested, they can uh, DM me at the real LA21 and I'll give them the name of the book. But it's, uh, it was about what was called the Sea Peoples. And so what basically happened was um, the whole like, so what's like Syria, Israel, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, and then like Crete, Cyprus, Turkey were all these super powerful um, people, you know, like the Phoenicians, Assyrians, Babylonians, um, what probably would have been essentially the black Egyptians at the time, 
Um, and what happened was there was this like force. There was this force of like not pirates, but some like Celts or something like that that went through all of these places, attacking them on the sea and destroyed them. They just like took out all these cities and like basically looted and everything like that. And they're not entirely sure whether they were Greeks or what they were from. But what was interesting about that book is it shows how much of the trade actually existed. Uh, and, and certain places like Cyprus, uh, Cyprus in particular, were like huge you know, trading trading hubs and everything like that. Um, and and the thing that I find interesting, and this is where you put your tinfoil hat on, right, with the whole, uh, you know, maybe aliens help them out sort of thing, but how so many of the ancient civilizations had uh, similar knowledge and techniques, whether that was like uh, mummification. I read this fantastic book on... Uh, astrology uh, and, and, and whatnot about how like how people knew how to map areas out and in regards to reading the stars for directions and um, concept of like where light was coming from for temples and, and everything like that and it's just weird how it's so interconnected you know like like it's it is bizarre because we would know that their form of sea travel would have to have been pretty limited, right? Like, they wouldn't have had, like, you know, I mean, you know, both of us, you know, know shipping pretty well. It's like once you get into the middle of Atlantic, it's it's pretty it's pretty brutal, mate, <laughs> you know? Like, it's not it's not calm waters of the Mediterranean, so to speak. So, yeah, it's, I think the whole thing is just fascinating about, um, you know, will, and will we ever find out? Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Maybe technology will get that good that we'll eventually find out more about it. Only time will tell. I think I think people know more than they let on. Did you know I always say that the research is always years ahead of what we actually have available to us as the information. I, I, I think similar is probably for yeah, I think so as well. Um, all right, so the next thing that we've got coming up uh, is... <laughs> you ready for this one, matey? The Prime Minister of Denmark has defended her government's decision to authorise a mass culling of 17 million minks. So minks are a type of animal, hence the mink coat and that sort of stuff. And a bit to combat the spread of coronavirus, Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen ordered the culling of the animals, devastating a lucrative industry renowned for its high-end furs. This week, Ms. Frindikerson has been fronting a top-level judicial inquiry into whether her government's decision was legal. While Jane's decisions generally backed it, initial handling of the pandemic, a political storm erupted when it came out that there had been no legal basis to order the cull of healthy minks. The incident triggered the resignation of the Agricultural Minister and the founding of a parliamentary bat commission to investigate whether the Danish government knew legal authority was lacking. Now the Danish media has labelled the affair Minkgate. I don't, I'm trying to read this article as I'm talking to you, right? Yeah. Oh, holy crap, this is brutal. The government burned most of the 17 million mink in incinerators last year after it was discovered there had been a coronavirus outbreak among the country's 200 farms, and that this could cause a mutation strain among humans. But limited capacity in the incinerators meant authorities had to bury around 4 million of the carcasses on military grounds. This is the most fucking ludicrous thing I've ever heard. What do you reckon, mate? I feel bad. I feel bad for the animals. We're going to get skinned anyway, but fucked up. 
people are just really nuts now with this whole this whole COVID thing. People can calm the hell down. It's it's uh, I mean, you know what? Honestly, it doesn't surprise me. That's the best way to put it. I, I, I just like did they burn them alive? It's a very good question. <laughs> it's a very good question. And I'm only going off the nine news article. It kind, of, it kind of sounds like they did. The government burned most of the 17 million Minkin incinerators. It's so messy. It's so, that's, that's really, really if they, if they surely they would, Surely they would have, like, injected them or something. That's fucking horrible. I'm not even that much that of an animal rights line. activist, but even I draw the line. That that's fucking ridiculous. It's a lot of drugs you need to line up. Easier just to drop them in the... God, that is really... That is such a callous... Callous respect for, for like literally no. Oh, that's really disgusting. Actually, it's really really disgusting. It's a disgusting thing to do. That's like really going back to their Viking roots, bro. I mean, I know Vikings are technically the the Norwegians, but I mean the Danes were the Danes were all up on the <laughs> on the orgies of you know rape rape pillage and you know torture and everything as well. You know, but. Yeah. They're just going back. They're going back to their barbaric roots on that one, mate. Sorry to the Danes listening in. I love Denmark, but that shit's just fucked up. Yeah, but going back to the barbaric roots, and then and then their target are, are minks. <laughs> they, they've really fallen a long freaking way. That's no way to get the, into their warrior afterlife. They're gonna get sent. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's so messed up. It's really. I really hope that they maybe put them like put them to sleep or 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 just, or maybe found a humane way to kill them and then burn them afterwards. But then why not just take the furs anyway? Unless they're afraid that they're going to spread COVID by the furs. Bro, this gets better. This is oh, this is a fucking amazing article. The burial site became a concern because they buried four million of them. The burial site became a concern when gases from the mink bodies started to release into the sandy soil causing them to resurface in what some described as something out of a zombie film. So they, so then, yeah, then they had to, that's why, part of the reason why they had to incinerate more of them, because they just came to the surface. Wow. All right, let's go on to the next one. Former deep sea treasure hunter is preparing to mark his sixth year in jail for refusing to disclose the whereabouts of 500 missing coins made from gold found in a historic shipwreck. Uh, research scientist Tommy Thompson has been held in contempt of court since 2015. <laughs> he's also incur he's incurring a daily fine of $1,400. Thompson's case dates to the discovery of the SS Central America known as the Ship of Gold in 1988. The Gold Rush era ship sank in a hurricane of South Carolina in 1857 with thousands of kilograms of gold on board. Aboard, contributing to an economic panic. Despite an investor lawsuit and federal court order, Thomas Thompson, 69, still won't cooperate with authorities trying to find those coins. <laughs> yeah. Uh... So initially, he was when he was found guilty, he was only meant to have two years in prison and 350 grand fine. It's, it's honestly such. I used to look into treasure hunting because I was always so so interested, and then obviously, you know, maritime salvage laws actually come into play uh, in some cases as well, right? Because the ship sank, so technically, you can find it and claim it. 
years, right? Yeah. The deal. Um, but because governments are such pricks and motherfuckers, if it's a tre- if it's treasure hunting, you only get to sometimes, sometimes you only get to keep a percentage of the value of what you find. Yeah, that's my understanding. Is a percentage of the value. Some, some I think like Colombia, where they have a lot of like treasure ships that sunk off the coast, and obviously you know they had all the piracy stuff. Forget it. You get nothing. If you find something, you get nothing. They take it. It's theirs entirely. You know, in, you know. Interestingly, on that, my uh, so my father travelled throughout the world, right? When he was when he was actually around your age, a bit younger. So he went from Bangkok to London overland. So through like India, um, Iran at the time was under the Shah, all of Europe, and he also went from. He went from America, so he went from Los Angeles down to right to the bottom of Argentina and all the way up through Brazil, again, on bus. So through all the Guatemalas, Costa Ricas, um, he said it was quite funny because <laughs> in Guatemala there was some military takeover and they hated Belize. So every you'd get pulled up in military checkpoints and everything like that, like every, every two stops. And because he had a British passport, they thought he might be from Belize and it was always a hassle. But anyway, he went to Colombia and he went to Bogota and he said, yeah, it was just full on because at the time um, you get picked up at the airport by the taxi drivers and a lot of the times they would just take you out the back, shoot you and then take your money, right? So he hooked up with this American guys, you know, just sort of solidarity and, you know, bit bit more people to work it out. But that's where I knew about the the gold and the gold and the treasure because he said the one thing he regretted in that whole trip is he never went to the northern parts of Colombia because that's where the old pirate hangouts were. Uh, and there's still the old ships and treasure and everything hidden in, in that northern part of Colombia. Um, so he kind of regretted never never going to go check it out. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, I don't know, finders keepers, no? Like, you've just gone, like, right to the bottom of the ocean found a ship, discovered it, well, I reckon you should be entitled to the gold. I, uh, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I agree. I think, however, that I understand why the countries might want to keep some of the... I, I wouldn't say you're entitled to the gold. I'd say you're entitled, entitled to the value. For sure, you should be given a percentage of the value. Because I would understand maybe there's some really, like, priceless... Know, artifacts or something on there that really is, you know, like the history of you know, the country or the, the, the ancestors. And so I understand why they would want to take that. But you should be fairly compensated for finding it. Like you go through, it, it, it's very, usually it's very expensive to do these kind of things, right? Because you if you're going to find shipwrecks, it, from what I understand, it's usually some pretty rich people bankroll the operations. Uh, just for shits and giggles, right? If you find something cool, if you don't, whatever. Um, so you should be justly compensated for it. Uh, that's why they have instances like this where people find stuff and they don't disclose how much they found or where they found it because why? There's no point. You get nothing out of it if you sell, tell them. So you just try to take it and keep it on the keep it on the down low. Obviously, it's hard to sell the stuff depending on what it is. But uh, yeah, that guy's screwed, I guess. Did you ever watch the... Um... There's a documentary on Netflix about those guys that robbed that, um, fuck, what was it called? They robbed that place in Boston, Boston, with all the artwork, all the, you know, famous Monet's or whatever it was, Van Gogh's, 
Um, was this the one where they just walked in and took it? Yeah. 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 That was great. <laughs> Freaking awesome. Just, wasn't it? Like, some, some robberies you hear, you're like, mate, that, just well done. Just, like, well done. But interesting enough, they were talking about how the artwork is used um, for loans in the in the um, underworld, like black market. So you have like a Picasso that's valued at a hundred million, and then so you use that you use that. So you say like, okay, I'm going to give you this Picasso with a hundred million. It's worth fifty million on the black market because some investor or whatever art collector will just buy it and keep it in his house. But I can. I can to leverage that off against you know forty million of heroin or you know counterfeit watches or whatever. So um, getting rid of the historical artifacts is obviously a huge market. I guess it's who you, who you know, but yeah, of course you know the there's certain things like that that I think you know that are that are for the culture and for the country that should be kept. Um, but I think it's like if you find it, you should keep it, and then it's just a declared income, and you just pay income tax on it or capital gains, you know. So the so the country actually gets some money back off it through tax and you know you flee with the lottery so to speak. But keeping him keeping him locked up in jail is a little bit ridiculous because he refused to tell you where the coins are. Actually, it's only a win for the government if they say that I will give you the fair value or even half of the fair value for what you found, and then they take all the gold. I think most governments would prefer to have gold instead of the you know paper money that they give you in exchange. It's a freaking great deal. They would, if any, they could even give you half of what it was worth, and then they just take the gold anyway, and you'd still probably take it and be happy. Mm. But governments are pricks, so they're not going to do that. This is one that um, shout out to Ibi on this one actually. He sent me it was absolute classic. All right, you ready? I don't know if I sent you this one. Saudi authorities have conducted their biggest ever crackdown on camel beauty contests that receive Botox injections and other artificial touch-ups. The state-ran Saudi press agency reported Wednesday with over 40 camels disqualified from an annual pageant. Saudi Arabia's popular king, Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which kicked off earlier this month, invites the breeders of the most beautiful camels to compete for some $92 million in prize money. Botox injections, facelifts, and other cosmetic alterations to make the camels more attractive are strictly prohibited. Jurors decide the women are based on the shape of the camels' heads, necks, humps, dress, and posture. There you go, mate. So well, I, you kind of understand for $92 million bucks why you'd worth run the risk of cheating, wouldn't you? I, I love camels. They're the coolest animals ever. They're the freaking humps. And the, they just look like they always don't care. Like they just have that look of like, yeah, just another day. And the way they run, everything about cattle. God, I love it. I, I love this whole article. They, they, I know you're talking about because I've been reading. It's like, get the hell out of here. There's no way this is a thing. Uh, yeah, but I feel bad that they're from both. I think camels are beautiful without anything. I think they're just fine the way they are. You're beautiful the way that you're born. <laughs> exactly. So, uh... I feel bad for the ones that have been that have been altered because they probably didn't have a say in it. So poor camels, they work so hard, and for what? Hmm? Bro, you ever you actually ever been on a camel? Yeah, when I was really little. Mate, I uh I was on a camel. I was on a camel train in Morocco. Uh, and what you do is you you go out into the Sahara Desert with the Bedouins. Um, and you st and you stay in the like tent, and so like the, you got like your, your the Bedouins like you know they take you out and 
Mate, it's, it's quite crazy, actually, because they've done it for, obviously, like, generations. They don't even... Of course, they've got mobiles and everything on it, but they don't exactly GPS. They just, like... They just know. And... <laughs> and uh, it was the most painful experience of my life because you go up the sand dunes and then the saddle just absolutely smashes into your crown jaw. As you go up and down, it's like... Like someone's got a fucking sledgehammer just smashing them. So I'm like, I start fucking crying from pain. And I'm like, oh. And I was like, I, I can't believe I've come from Australia for this shit. Fuck. <laughs> right. And then like the camel train behind me, you hear this. Yeah, mate. Where, 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 where are you from in Aussie, bro? I said, I oh, can't believe it. So I am from so-and-so suburb in Melbourne. And then you hear this. Yeah, yeah, right. You're fucking kidding me, mate. I live down the road from you. So I literally, yeah, as I'm dying on this camel, I bumped into a bloke that lived no more than about, uh, I don't know, three blocks from my house. And then what happens is you stay in the, you stay in the, the tents and it's like super comfortable and you have all these stews and you go up onto the, um, sand dunes and watch the sunset and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But they have to tie the camels up, right? Because what happens is the camels run away. So you wake up in the morning and <laughs> your camel's fucking disappeared because it's just pissed off to try and find some, like, bush or some herb or, you know, go have a chat to its other camel mates. And, um, yeah, eventually you get back on and we go back and I jumped off the camel because I just couldn't handle it anymore. I was like, I want to have kids. I jumped off the camel and it just started wailing, like, wah. So then I found myself just patting this camel saying, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah, crazy times, mate. I always wanted to do that. I, I always want, I always put camel out there. Like a, I'm, not, I'm not surprised it, it would hurt. It would hurt. I, like my, my, I get hurt just riding a bike, honestly. The seats are horribly uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm sure if I ever long-term rode a camel, it would, it would hurt. It would hurt a lot. Yeah, right. Um, hmm. Just the Epstein trial still going on, isn't it? Uh, uh, Mac, just, uh, just, just, yeah, just Lane, just Lane Maxwell. Um, yeah, God, I mean, I guess you got to even be careful what you put on recorded wax because I'm sure the CIA and everyone else would be listening in when you talk about it. But probably, it just <laughs> hi, by the way. Uh, yeah, look, you know, <laughs> if you're listening in a little bit later on, let me know how you like a cup of tea, mate. When you come around for questioning me, <laughs> you're gonna get in trouble, man. Yeah, I know, I know. But um, it just seems so wild. It just seems so wild, the whole thing, like, that it was this huge, like, un un underage ring for, like, all the celebs and royals and everything like that. And it seems like everyone was involved, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm not surprised. Yeah. I have a very low opinion of all those people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to ask you the same thing. I can't remember. 
I don't remember either how he got how they found out. But I mean, it's been going on for years, right? And there's been people entertaining all this for so long, and they don't see anything. They protect their own, these guys. And then, of course, when when things go down, then um, you know, conveniently, now he can't talk anymore, and we can't see most of the information. Yeah. So it's uh, ah, my gosh, it's just so it's so <laughs> obvious. It's just sickening, you know. It's like nobody's held accountable. Nobody's held accountable for anything. The only people who ever get held accountable for stuff are like, you know, middle class and below. Yeah. Occasionally, you get some of these upper class people. They get they get uh, they get caught, and because it's just so blatant about what's going on that you can't not do something. But otherwise, all this stuff just gets thrown under the rug. But then you see the government and all these people come crashing down on, you know, small time, uh, like even weed dealers and stuff. It's like, don't you have like. You're telling me that this is what you're concerned about? You don't actually know who the main suppliers are? I don't buy that for a second. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's like, literally on record that the CIA was... It's like the CIA with the whole Contra scandal, right? That they were putting all the crack into America. It's actually on government file and in public knowledge. It's like they were supplying crack through the... Well, the Nicaraguans or whatever into, into, into so-called, you know, ghetto, ghetto America. It's like... It's the same thing with the. It's also on file with the supplying the heroin to all the Vietnamese, uh, the soldiers in Vietnam to fund all their all their extracurricular activities during the Vietnam War. So it's you know it's it's the same thing with all the weapons, mate. You know it's like all the wars fought around the world, and there's only four or five million you know people that are supplying the weapons. You know, um, I, I feel like most problems can be solved very quickly. Like if you if you legitimately wanted to solve the issue, you could solve it very quickly. Like I I just I can't I don't find it believable that the United like just take the U.S. for example, right? The United States, who has such a humongous intelligence network and a massive military and all of these drones and all that, that they can't find a way to really cripple the entire industry. Like of course it will always be there, right? I'm not saying you can get rid of it 100%, but you can for sure, you know, squeeze to the point that it barely exists, but just exists enough that, you know, it doesn't grow too much further than that. Sort of like what they have in, I guess, Singapore, right? Okay, Singapore is much smaller, so it's a lot, it's a lot easier to handle. Um, it's like a micro version of what you would have to do on a bigger scale for something like the U.S., which is huge. But it's just, it's just not believable to me. Like, e I feel like so many conflicts can be solved so so quickly, but whatever. Yeah, I th I think it's also that um yeah it's I, I think it's also because it's like the demand, you know whether that's like the demand for example for drugs in in America and Australia is just fucking astronomical. Um, and then also you look at uh you know stuff like weapons, you know. So Australia there's not really that that demand because you know, our background isn't that um, written in the Bill of Rights, the right to bear arms and the right to take up arms against the government is, you know, you can legally form a militia, basically. We don't we don't have that, right? And because it's not within the, the society, um, there's not that demand for it. Even if, they outlawed, if, even if they outlawed weapons and banned it out, selling out of Walmart, there'd still be that demand for um, importing it, so to speak. Uh, so... Yeah, it's also addressing sort of the core issues of why people wanted and when they wanted and how they wanted as well. But I just think you should legalise everything and then just like put a tax on it. 
So, you know, within, obviously within, like, you don't want some Sodom and Gomorrah shit, but within reason, um, maybe it's a libertarian in me, right? Did you hear about the, <clears throat> did you hear about New Zealand banning cigarettes? Yeah. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Mate, you're, it, back, this is going way back in the day. There used to be a, a place called, um, I think it's Myrtleford in Victoria, where they used to, it used to be like Chop Chop, I think they called it, which was the illegal tobacco, the illegal tobacco sales. And it was just like, look, I, I want to say I'm recalling this of memory. So, you know, if someone fact checks me and it's not true, then let's just take it as a yarn for a moment, right? But I think if memory tells me the stories were correct, that basically, like, there was this ring of people that were running all the tobacco, selling it illegally, dodging the taxes, but it was also mafia. So there was, like, people getting buried in other people's, like, uh, cemetery tombstones and, <laughs> you know, like, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, it's the same thing in New Zealand. All you're going to do is have the bikies, you know, start selling tobacco. But then also, interesting, do you think society's changed in terms of smoking? Because you don't see people smoking like they used to in Australia anymore, for example. I, I think, okay, I think what New Zealand is wrong, but I think what a lot of countries have done is kind of correct in terms of, I guess before I was even born, right, smoking was always considered like a cool, a cool thing to do, and it, it had that style and, and the style that they developed around it, but now they don't do that anymore, right? And now you buy a cigarette box and they show you all those freaking horrible pictures on there, and, and, and I think that's the way to do it, right? Because... I think by saying you're not allowed to do it, you're just going to have kids. That's what it seems like it's aimed at, is to have younger generations not get hooked. But, I mean, what kid doesn't do what they're not supposed to do, right? Yeah, now so, kids will start smoking to be badass. Yeah, exactly. So now you're making it more of a badass thing. Like, oh, damn. You get slice over there smoking. Shit. Be cool. And then you get your little gang going. And you start smoking, and then, you know, it, kids just the crap. That's all they're going to do. I think the way that they handled it in recent recent times is much better. They don't really market it anymore. I don't really see marketing for cigarettes anywhere, right? And I think that I think that is the correct way to go about it. I think if you want to make it everybody's own choice, but there's proven negative side effects, like if you overdo it, you should not actively market it, right? Like if somebody really wants to do it, they should go out of their way to do it and, and, and find it and maybe do their own research. But don't don't push the product on them. Um, alcohol is another thing, right? Obviously, I, you know, I like to drink as much as I used to, but it's another one. I mean, really, considering it, it's sort of like poison. Um, but they still advertise it like crazy, and really, it's not its not good for you, right? It doesn't do anything for you. I mean, sure, it helps with stress here and there, but you don't need it to be marketed to everybody for, you know, you get what I'm saying? I, I, I think that when you have vices like that, don't market it and try to entice people to come do it. That's all. Don't tempt them. But the choice is there for them to do it if they want to. If they deem that it's something that they want to do, let them do it. But don't try to make it look cool or pull people in at younger ages. and Because and, you do get hooked, right? It's the thing. It's not as if it's a one-and-done kind of thing. It's not like you're marketing skydiving. You know, people skydive once and then they're done. Some might continue, but usually it's like, a, oh, I'm just going to go try it. That's fine. And there's really no negative effects unless your parachute doesn't open. But then you don't got much to worry about anyway. 
It would, uh, there probably would be that time, I think, that if your parachute didn't open, where it would be a... Uh, it, it, it'd almost be kind of euphoric, wouldn't it? Because you'd just be like, I'm going to die. I may as well just enjoy this ride all the way down. I'm sorry. I was ASC in the US. Yeah. She did a speech on the floor and said it's ridiculous that she needs to pay 17000 in student loans. Do you know how much she gets paid in Congress? No, I don't, actually. Let, let me know. Her salary is six figures. I think she gets paid anywhere between like 125 to 150 grand a year. And she's complaining about $17,000 in student loans. But isn't this the whole, um, isn't this sort of the whole argument going on at the moment with uh, free education and free college in America? It's such a scam. First of all, we're down a rabbit hole here. This is my own opinion. I think most colleges are the biggest fucking ripoff in the world. They charge you an astronomical amount of money to teach you what you would probably learn in any of the same colleges and you come out competing a against a bunch of other fucking people who have the same degree as you, fighting for a job that probably doesn't pay you enough. If, you're, if your loans are only $17,000 when you get out of school or maybe that's what she has left after she paid because I think she went to a pretty expensive school. But if you come out with only $17,000 in debt, you fucking nailed it. Like good on you. Like that's really like Good job. That that's nothing, right? That is nothing. You're like you, you, you go to school, like in the US, some private schools are like forty to sixty thousand a year. And and why 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 is it so expensive? For what for it's such a freaking bubble to think of how much money that people don't have and they're taking out loans and taking out government aid and they're paying all this back and they're stuck paying these loans back for the rest of the not the rest of their life, but a good portion of their life. It's just crazy. And then what they do is you have the politicians, snake oil salesmen, saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna make college free." It's not. First of all, it's not free, right? If, if anything, they're just gonna say you don't have to pay the federal loan back. If you take any private loans, you're gonna have to. If, if they're actually considering paying for people's private colleges as well, uh, I, that I don't think is viable at all. So I would assume they're saying they're gonna be paying. They're just gonna forgive the federal loan. Because, right, when you go to school, this is another reason that colleges bump up tuition, is because the government will always give you X amount of dollars for a loan. There's two loans. They give you subsidized, unsubsidized. Everybody gets it. So if the colleges know that, oh, it costs us, you know, really what we could work off of is 30000 a year. But because we know every student is going to get that extra fifteen grand from the government, tuition is 45000 yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you've you've raised a very a few interesting points. Uh, and I, look, I only know Australian, and I and I only know my experiences, right? So, I had um, I had a degree in uh, international studies and politics, a degree in commerce, majoring in finance, uh, a combined honours. So it's like you do two honours at the same time, which is equivalent of masters in the states of uh, international studies and of all things Middle East politics, specialising in terrorism. Right? Again, properly flagged. I studied it at Monash University. You can check it to the people tapping this podcast, right? And I think overall it was um, 32,000, 34,000 Aussie was my uh, overall costs. And the breakdown of that was, bro, honestly, I think half of it was my honours degree. And then even then it was like because I had to hire one professor full-time at whatever it was that he earns 150 bucks an hour or whatever that and i had to see him a couple of times a week you know so it was that that's or once a week or whatever it was so that's that's how it added up 
And there's, um, there's, uh, they do a lot of research in Australia and they basically have um, the majority of people that study some form of like business or law or engineering, over time they actually do, do well out of it in terms of overall income. Um, they start off a long way behind everyone else, but once you add it up over a working career, they, they, they earn a, a decent amount of money from it. So it's in a way kind of worthwhile. But the difference is, is that um, in Australia, our carpenters and our plumbers and our people driving trucks and mines earn an absolute fuckload, right? So you go to the mines, it's not uncommon to earn a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, a truck driver can easily earn a hundred grand a year. Uh, a guy who's no no skill, like on my construction, the construction site my dad has, you know, a guy with like no skills, just a very generally good like handyman, you know, just good on the tools and everything like that. Um, no education, left school at 15. He's still on kind of 90, 90 something hundred thousand dollars a year, right? So it's, it's it's in Australia, it's a bit different with with overall. Ours is a bit different in the sense that we have what's known as what's helped now, but was hex when I was doing it, where the government gives you the money uh, to pay for it, and then your repayment is tied to your inflation. So if the inflation's low at one two percent, then that's what it is. Uh, and it's also capped. So if you earn under a certain amount of forty thousand or fifty thousand dollars a year, you never pay it. So in theory, like a full blown, you know, greeny hippie, you know, socialist can go to university, do like five arts degrees, and because he earns, he, they earn forty thousand dollars a year, they never have to repay it, right? Um, but I think as time goes on. And especially with the way that the the world is changing, it's more so what's being taught in the universities, and what agenda is it, and whether it's political or social or you know, I mean, it's a, it's it's a very biased view now. Universities, it's not it's not a very um, centralist point of view, and I'm not saying it should be far right or far left, but it's 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 no longer, and then it's also you know, arithmetic and whatever is pretty simple, but once you start to go into history and archaeology and science and um, whose voice is it? You know, is it the is it the Eurocentric majority voice or is it Indigenous voice or whatever? It it, it becomes a very skewed thing that the people are taught. So you come out of university and uh, you're indoctrinated basically. Well, a lot of the stuff that you don't even use. I mean, finance is a prime example. You look at finance and it's like a lot of the stuff that you use doesn't even work. And then when you look into it even further, it's like based on these super random what ifs. And then when you sit down with all the banking Wall Street guys and you ask them, how do you make the decision? A lot of the times they're like, oh, yeah, we run the models and we do these charts for our clients to show that we know what we're talking about. But half the time it's just feeling taking a punt. You know, like so that's that's where that's where like okay, you're starting to offer free college, but then why why are you offering it? Because what are you trying to teach the people? Like, what's the side? Are you trying to manipulate the side of people coming out? So that's where I think it starts to get pretty interesting with what's going on. How these people are so politicised, like a mediator, and all the time. I think politics now should. 
That's the that's the thing. But also, what I was going to say in, in regards to your comments is, um, it depends also the country that you're in. So, for example, in the UK, in Britain, uh, it's the fact you've done a degree. So it's quite common to have people that are, have like a history major or some like in languages or something. It's just the fact that they went to university. And then they end up in like finance or business or shipping or whatever it is. It's just you did a great you did a degree that proves you can apply yourself. Whereas in America and Australia, it's very more specific to to what it is that you studied. And then in terms of you know how much can really be changed, yeah, I mean it's like reading the the the, the Odyssey and Plato and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's it's the same text. Um, and also, it's what's what's actually left of what's actually left of history, because a lot of the indigenous cultures and other cultures. I mean, you've had 400, 500 years of uh, sort of a European missionaries writing it down and and whatnot. Um, 
and certain areas that you just haven't even had a chance to, like, you know, the highlands of Papua New Guinea or something like that. So, yeah, I think that... And then it's also how does how does a society operate because our society is more based on... We've moved away from, to a certain extent, from manufacturing and that kind of working-class jobs to high-tech and business and, you know, we don't yeah. make things like we used to anymore. Yeah, but for me, I, I think there's a lot of redundancy lot of in a lot of professions. I mean look at another one, again, I understand the need for it right now, but I feel that in the future there won't be a need is like accounting. I, I feel as if tax laws can be very simplified. I mean look at look at the I mean look at the US system of how we do our income tax. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. They they know exactly how much we have to pay them in. They get all the information. The IRS knows. But they still make us do all of the filing. They could just, like Singapore, they just tell you how much you owe. Which is what should be done, right? <laughs> but now, if you want to, if, in the U.S., you can't, no, 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 no. You have to go get an accountant. You have to go set up a, set up an account with, like, HR Block, and you have to go do it through them. And It's just, it's, it's all, I feel that so much can be simplified in terms of that kind of stuff. Like, there's, there's a lot of that. It could be trimmed and make things simpler. But obviously, by doing that, you're going to be cutting a lot of... You make some people's lives easier, but some people's... I guess. And in, in, and in your comments of, uh, about, I guess, history, about how much do we really know. But that, that's exactly my point, right? Is History shouldn't be, hey, let's just keep parroting the same thing over and over again. The idea would be that, hey, history for sure has been skewed to give a certain perspective. I'm going to try to figure out is this really true or, or push the boundaries or, or, or try to discover something new or offer some alternate theories. But we don't, you know, there's some people out there doing that. But I find that the most of the people who go into the history course are just going to do whatever the professor tells them and they're going to read it, they're going to know, and they're going to repeat what's given to them. Also, who's being published? Like, are you going to actually get published if you come up with some radical views? Evolving, but like you said before, you know, you're going back further and further. Yeah, but most history was transcribed by the, the European monks at the time, and of course they could change it to how they wanted to when they hit that dark uh, that dark period. But then we have all these different who was it the Ivan the was Ivan the Terrible's library, the Library of Alexandria, like all this information is lost. But you think people would want to go back and try to maybe say, hey, well, what we know about years uh, between you know the fall of Rome and the 1500s, there might be some things in here that aren't necessarily true. And then try to figure that out. I know there are people who can do that, but again, how how many out of all these people coming out with with, uh, with history? And again, the, the the U.S. is quite similar, I would say, in terms of most people just want you to have a degree. But of course, the degree that the degree that you have does play a bigger role into the job you're you're going into, and it should obviously, right? If if you're going to college to study something, it should play some role into what you want to do. But at the end of the day, I would say that most of the jobs that people get after they finish don't require a college degree. No. Um, if you're really interested in working in the field you're working in, the experience is worth so much more than any degree you'll ever get. I mean, half the time, the curriculum's probably outdated. The, you know, I mean, in shipping, because okay, so I, you know, I, I'm not going to name the school I went to, but I went to like a very shipping-focused school and I got my license to sail, right? I, I got a degree, but the point of being going to school wasn't to, OK, 
okay, once they get a degree, everybody wants a degree, need a degree. That's just the way it is. Um, but I wanted to sail. So my school was almost like a trade school, right? Because you, you take all of the sailing classes, you know, radar, safety, uh, ship handling, cargo, uh, cargo operations, and you learn how to do all these things, and you get sea time and license, and you go sail, and you earn money sailing. The program was nice in the sense that they also gave you a, a, a dual degree in the sense of that you can take business classes, get like maritime business or marine transportation or even, you know, engineering or whatever. So you did them side by side. Um, now, of course, that helps if you go into shipping because now you have all that background and you have the experience sailing. But if, if you just want to be like, uh, depending on what you want, if you want to be very commercially oriented in shipping, it helps to have the background, but you don't need it. You can learn it over time. And you could probably say, you know, if I only want to be a commercial person, I, I only want to do like sales or marketing or, or uh, negotiating like that. Um, I would say four years on the job training is better than anything you could get from a school. Yeah, I think that um, it's definitely on the job training. You've you got to be in whatever it is you, you do in life, you've got to really take your time. And unfortunately, no matter, no matter whether it's film or shipping or accounting or even you know trades it, it, it takes a long time it's a it's a really it's a very long commitment you know it's kind of almost a lifetime commitment to it um but interestingly just just kind of going back a little bit on also what else you were saying with um uh, the Library of Alexandria and, and monks monks translating in, in uh, Middle Ages Europe. My aunt actually gave me this really interesting book on religion. So it went through um, all the different, like not just Abrahamic, like Islam and Christianity and, and Judaism, but also Hindu and Sikh and uh, the, what was it called? The Iranian, the Zoroastrians, or whatever, I forgot what it is. And the very interesting thing that came through with the monks of Europe is when you talk to when you talk to some Christians, they'll say, "Okay, well, this is a book, and it's and it's kind of a it's a guide, you know, it's a guide to life um, based on the principles." And then there's other Christians that will go, "No, this is a direct word of God, right? This is like the direct word of it, right?" But what was really interesting was um, along those lines. Was when you look because it was in what was it? Americ, Greek, uh, Hebrew. Uh, the books were obviously in different languages, and when they translated the wording, they translated the meaning into because they were living under like a king uh, and a feudal system. That even to the way that things were described. So, for example, if the um, the the original text would say that like we are we are God, like we're we're, we're the being of God and everything about us. We are godly. The translation would have been, we are just under God uh, and, and we are lesser looking up because at the time the king was the holy king and you couldn't be equivalent to the king, right? <laughs> you know, so there was all these interesting examples of how the translation was altered um, to suit the situation and the time. And because the majority of people obviously were illiterate because there was no schools, um, that's how that's how it kind of spreads. So again, it's like with the meanings that you're getting a lot of the times written in texts, um, you have to also start to look at. Um, you have to always go further in it. 
And in terms of the Library of Alexandria, that's... Oh, bro, like, there's a few things I'd like to do, like, um, going back, if you could go back in time, right? First of all, I'd like to take a pistol and shoot Hitler in the head. That'd be, like, generally very satisfying. Um, so that'd probably be the first thing. But then, other than that, you know, your usual gigs and meeting famous people. But I'd also like to go back to um, Alexandria, like, at its height, the library, and just provided... You know, let's just presume you can read it in your language right like you just understand it um it'd be so dope to actually go and read all those books and all the knowledge that they had don't you think uh i i always think about uh, going back going back in time with them like, i i think it is and i think the reason i agree with you and the reason i always find it interesting is because back then it was really i feel like the world was really like incredible right like People were so, like, things were so small and closed off, actually. That, like, if you sailed to another continent, that was already freaking mind-blowing, right? And you had crazy stories, and the nature was probably gorgeous, and really, everything was just new and exciting, and it's just so much to discover, so much to see, like, really, like, the forefront of adventure, right? Now it sucks. Now we know where everything is. Uh, okay, there's some islands that we don't know much about, but whatever, maybe there's, like, some government meth labs on there. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I think, I think there's a lot, <laughs> I think there's a lot more to learn, to learn from back then, but also just the excitement of, like, the, the reason I got into shipping actually was because of the history of shipping, right? I like shipping now, but to me, it, it's also quite, like, on autopilot for 90% of the world. Like, everything is kind of, you know, like, thinking back to what it must have used to be. Uh, even going back like ancient Egypt, ancient ancient Rome, and just seeing what the old ships used to look like and, and how they traveled carrying cargo, it's just incredible to me. Like it's really so. The world was just a smaller place, I think. Right? Have you been to London and have you seen uh, Sir Francis Drake ship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How tiny was it? Quite small. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no, that, that was just a little. There was just a little sort of expedition. That's what that's what my uh, my dad is super into all that naval history and you know I buy him all the books on the uh, the line and how they used to fight and. Um... I have a I bought a great book. I forgot to bring it with me. It's the history of like ship. It's the history of like shipbuilding and naval architecture. It's huge, but I I really want to sit down and, and run through it. So it starts with like all the like the Polynesian boats and, and how they how they were able to na navigate with the stars and like the small like island hopping island hopping boats and such and then it, and then it continues from there about like oh, like uh, how canoes were made the Viking ships the eventually getting like long ships and then to caravels and then to you know uh, galleons ships on line clippers and it just it goes all the way up and then it gets to the steamships which actually is probably when I start losing I lose a little bit more interest because. I, I, I don't know. I think I have a very romantic of what it was prior, like when you had like the old ships group. To me, that really is like man. That's man against the, the elements and, and, and the pure essence of physicality, right? All still powered by you know, man, uh, essentially, like muscle. Um, but then once you get to like uh, ships now, of course. I'm not saying we should go back to that, and I'm very grateful for what we had in terms of the, of, of the progress in ships, and it's incredible to see continue. But it's just a different feel.
fuel now, even when I sailed, it, it felt different, right? Yeah, but I sailed on oil tankers, so it was a little anyway. I mean, the hose is up, and then you have to... Oh, my God. Now you've said you've sailed on oil tankers. We've just lost half our audience in protest of climate change, mate. Fuck. <laughs> but at the time I did, and I was very pro oil. Because <laughs> I wanted to... <laughs> but then, uh, but then, yeah. But it was, um, I mean, it was cool, right? A lot of the, a lot of the things were quite cool in terms of, uh, like we had in Colombia where they actually hook you up to SPM, so, uh, SPM, so single point, single point mooring or single buoy mooring? And you pretty much attach to a buoy, and there's a, there's a pipe underneath it, and you connect to it, and you just uh, pop it in and out through there. So you actually never even go into port. Everything's done offshore. It was quite. It was quite cool, and obviously, it's cool to see how things continue developing. And now, what they had that, where they just made a container ship not too long ago, right? The first was it the AI first AI driven ship. Yeah. Uh, did you did you actually get to go after the ports very much and kind of check it out? And what were the ports uh, you like? Non-existent tankers. The late time is like seventy-two hours done. You have three days, and it's there's no such thing as Sundays, Saturdays, not not included. It's not non-existent. I think holidays. Maybe sometimes, like super holidays. But uh, in terms of like actually being on ships and sailing, did you enjoy it? Like, so it sounds like you're going to go into the port now, and then you sit there, they connect, take the oil, and then you go off to the next port instead of being able to, yeah, I don't know, wander around Colombia, for example. Yeah. So on on my experience, right? I'm sure it's different. Long ago, I, I've heard it's only gotten worse. Actually. Even when I sailed, now with all the rules and everything, it's just it gets worse and worse. But um, my experience, no, I barely had any time because uh, you only you were only there for you're working the majority of it. It's not like you can just take off and leave because you have to have you have your cargo watches, so you have to work eight hours a day for cargo watch, right? Then you have some other jobs that you have to do while you're in port. You you could maybe pull away for a couple hours to go shopping. Um, now bulk ships, I think. Ships and container ships were better because I, I had friends who sailed on container ships, and it, it, they also had quick turnaround time. But because you're not as involved, I think in terms of like the the, the, the cranes and everything is kind of done on the on the on the shore side. And um, when they were at least cadets, they had a good amount of free time. Uh, bulkers, obviously, you know, um, they're, they're, they can be important like fucking two weeks, so you have a lot more time to kind of get off and kind of go around and, you know, you can plan it out. But on tankers, no, uh, we, we never had any time. And the thing is, is usually in most countries, the refineries, if you're not doing an offshore operation, right, like a SPM operation, the refineries aren't usually close to the places you want to be, right? Because if, obviously if there's an explosion, you don't want people to die. So they tend to put the refineries away from where people yeah. are living. So if you want to go anywhere, you got to take a fuck foster where you need to go, and that's more time you're losing, right? It can't be out. So my, my, my experience in terms of the, the port experience, I was in Colombia, I was in Spain, and I was in... Okay, so the places I was in was Colombia, Spain, Gibraltar, and uh, Louisiana. Uh, Colombia never went ashore because we didn't have time, uh, and we were, it was offshore stuff. Spain, I was able to go ashore one day, which was the day I joined uh, the ship, and it was in Cartagena, Spain, and it was not really much. It was very quiet whole city was practically like shut. I don't know what was going on actually it was really quiet maybe it was like Sunday afternoon or something I don't know and Gibraltar I only had time 
there because I signed off in Gibraltar. Otherwise, we stopped there for bunkers, so normally you don't have any time to get off. But because I signed off there, I, I got one day. But when I was actually like working on the ship, no, Lake Charles was the only place I was able to kind of had to take a, a car to get to the to the there's like a casino thing resort there, which was really the only thing to do. I don't remember what it was called. The Panda, the Burj. Oh, nice. I think I think that's what it was called, the Burj. I could be wrong. It was a good time. That was years ago. Um, but working on board, it's hard but simple. I think it's 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 definitely you have to have a you have to have the money for it. Like you have to be okay being away from home. I think the usual stints for officers are like three, four months on and a couple months off. The ABs and OSs who are usually uh, Filipinos or uh, actually all mine were always from the Philippines. They're on there. I don't know how they do it. They're on there a long time. Some of them on there for almost a year. It's um, such cramped quarters you live in, though. That's what would that was what would do my head in. Like, it's not that bad. It, it's actually not that bad. Uh, when you're on a normal, when you're on like a cargo ship, like okay, the ship I was on was an Aframax tanker, right? I'm pretty sure everybody had their own room, or all the officers had their own room. And my room was my room was okay sized. It wasn't big, but it was alright. Uh, it was like a, it was okay. It was it was a small room, but it was a little. I think I think the unlicensed also had their own rooms or they only had two-door room but the rooms were bigger oh wow so it's not like on the bulk vessels where they're just um thrown in in the masses no but even in even on bulk vessels, it's only probably about it's about same crew size getting smaller but about same so it shouldn't be oh just it, it's not horrible plus you're not you're not in your room that much but like you're you're really i was only in my room to to sleep and uh when i was a cadet i had to do the i had to do project I had to do so actually I didn't even do it in there I was only in there to sleep because you're too busy man you, you, you have you, you you work eight hours a day you have your meals in between in between right so just like let's say you 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 for sure are going to be working at least okay then you're going to eat on top of that maybe an you know an hour for for dinner which is when the day's over so now you're nine hours maybe wake up early to have breakfast now you're ten hours uh, and then, you know, some lunch in between, so maybe say like 10 and a half hours. Half the day, you're practically doing shit. And then you might even have to do some stuff a little bit after that, right? You know, they're, they're quite strict on, you know, overworking you and making sure you don't do too much overtime. And, but, but sometimes it can't be helped. Sometimes there's just too much that's done in terms of maintenance of the ship and, and uh, checking on uh, lifeboats and, and running tests and making sure it's working. Um, I mean, of course, everybody always loved long sea passages. That's when you had the most time to kind of chill out. And then if you want to go to the gym, right, because most ships have the gym. So let's say you're between working and eating, you're already talking about 10 hours. Then you want to go to gym 11 hours. So you're talking about half the day. So half the day you're doing shit. Um, then, you know, sleep here and there. You, you really don't have that much free time. To, um, I, I'd say you're quite busy. Watch movies if you want. That's what some guys do with a couple hours they have free. They'll just watch. But they also have like a, a communal rooms where I know my ship had like a PlayStation, I think, and some games. Sit there and you just talk to guys and drink coffee and there's a lot of space. That's all right. It wasn't bad. I remember talking to one and ship owner and um, shout out to Gab, by the way, in uh, Paris. And um, <laughs> he said he's going on, he's going to go see his ship, right? in the port and uh he goes yeah he goes I, I got this request i said what was it mate 
he goes DVDs. Because what happened was they only had like two DVDs on board. So they had watched the two movies. And this is before like your streaming of Netflix and Wi-Fi and everything like that, right? So <laughs> he goes, uh, he goes, <laughs> all they were requesting the whole time by email is, can you bring some more DVDs? So obviously it's back in the day when people had a heap of pirated DVDs or he even just went down to the local, you know, JB Hi-Fi and bought like, you know, a couple of hundred bucks worth of, you know, DVDs for him. And he goes, I rock up, <laughs> I rock up with this huge bag of DVDs and dump it in the communal room. And he goes, all oh, the dudes were just like all emotional. <laughs> just like finally can watch new stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, Broski, uh, we're coming up to an hour and 20 minutes, and I've got to edit it, so I really can't be, uh, I can't be asked to do too much more, because it's going to be too hard to edit. So, all righty, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure, and, uh, yeah, anything